Welcome to episode three of the Katie Helper Show. On today's episode, we talk to Jelani Cobb of The New Yorker about the alleged absence of racism in America. Organizer Pablo Benson Silva sheds light on the debt crisis in Puerto Rico. Giovanni Zelko, the director of the film The Algerian, Andrew Carell, the editor of Mediaite, discuss Islamophobia, and a funny thing happened on the way to the comedy show. I spilled the beans about my accidental but providential run-in with Jimmy the Rent is Too Damn High McMillan. Make sure you check out our next episode this Wednesday, where Desiree Birch and Ted Alexander will be joining us live in studio. The time now is 6 p.m. Stay tuned for The Katie Halper Show. the katie halper show it is six something p.m and that was you call me by the ballet my good friends who are in the sissy pop six band six p.m oh thank you six let the records show that it is six oh six p.m um we are doing something kind of interesting we at the katie halper show by the way which you can listen to every wednesday from six p.m to seven p.m on wbai and 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. My partner in crime, Gabe Pacheco, you may have heard of him. He is stuck in transit because there was some kind of power outage, but we are taking advantage of our technological prowess and actually going to call Gabe. So is Gabe on the line? Gabe. Oh, Reggie, what's going on? Reggie, I'm oh. right here. Oh, Gabe. Gabe and Reggie are in a bromance, yeah, by the way. Well, well apparently. Um, someone told me, they were like, don't, don't talk about Gabe and Reggie like that. People are going to think you're jealous. I was like, no, it's, I love this. I totally sanctioned this. I brought them together and I'm a hundred percent, uh, behind this. It's all good. It's all good. So Gabe, where are you? Give us a, can you give us a traffic report? Oh man. Well, I'm in the back of an Uber cab right now with my good man, Mukhtar up front. Mukhtar. From Yemeni for uh, the last two years and he loves his new job as an Uber driver. Tell him we say hi. hi. Hi, Mukhtar. <laughs> Hi, Mukhtar. Okay, good. We're all, we're uh, all this is Gabe Pacheco, by the way, the comedian who you can see all around town. He has his own show at the Passenger Bar on Tuesdays in Williamsburg. And, of course, I'm here with Reggie Johnson. Yep, that's me. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the keyboards <laughs> of engineering. First, I want to go over the headlines. Gabe, you cool with that? Oh, please. All right. So feel free keep to chime in. Okay, I'm going to keep... T- right. Gabe, this is all for you. Okay, ready? So this is just some of the stories that happened um, over the course of the week since we last convened last Wednesday. The second pregnancy of abstinence-only spokeswoman Bristol Palin inspires all people who fail at the one job they are paid to do. <laughs> in case you guys missed the story, on Thursday, the unmarried Bristol Palin announced that she was pregnant with her second child. This development is especially fascinating given that Palin earned a mere $262,500 as an abstinence-only advocate and ambassador for the Candies Foundation in 2009, having already had one baby. This hefty sum... Yes, Gabe. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about this. It just reminds me of Jurassic Park, you know, how life finds a way. Life finds a way. I mean, life life finds a way. Yeah. The hefty sum, right, that they paid her was seven times what the charity earned in donations. Amazing. And according to Forbes, apparently the organization was only able to find 35000 to grant to charities. So that's what they spent their money on. They paid a spokeswoman who was 
already had a baby under her belt, so to speak, to be their absence-only spokesperson. And to be clear, guys, I'm not shaming Bristol for becoming pregnant or having a baby without being married. I'm shaming her for getting paid to preach a policy that she clearly doesn't practice because it doesn't work, right? So beyond spreading a false abstinence-only gospel and spreading disinformation, she's making buck doing it. And that seems like the very definition of hypocrisy. And I'm pretty sure I'm a Jew, but Jesus was Jewish, so we have that in common. Um, but I, I won't hold that against you, though. That I have a lot in common with Jesus? Yeah. No, or you mean you, that I'm a Jew? Both. Reggie, you know what I say to you? I say you're welcome, by the way. Well, you're Christian, right? You're welcome. No, I don't prescribe to him. I don't either, but, uh, but I mean, your fam- your background. Yeah, it's All right. Baptist background. There you go, so yeah, you're welcome, because yeah. who, who schlepped from inn to inn right. when, when the inns were full and popped him out of her zoptic hips? Who was that? Mary, Marilla, as I call her, her Marilla, Yiddish nickname, yeah. Marilla. I like um, that. I like it's that. good, right? Yeah, I like that. Um, but that is the very definition of hypocrisy, and I did think that Jesus Christ, who the Palins claimed to follow so loyally, wasn't into that whole thing, but... Here's the good news, ready? For all my pro-choice brothers and sisters out there, the good news is, and the alternate headline for this story, is that Bristol Palin unwittingly becomes Planned Parenthood's most effective and cheapest spokeswoman. Funny. Right? Funny. Right? So she's getting paid by an abstinence only. They're wasting their money. Planned Parenthood gets the best spokeswoman for free. They don't lift a finger. They don't recruit her. They don't pay a dime. All they have to do is point to her. Right? So she'll be on the post and saying, don't be like her. Exactly. Yeah. That's it's pretty easy. <laughs> Japanese women's obsession with a handsome gorilla proves that the people who warned that same-sex marriage would lead to bestiality were right. So what happened? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Critics of marriage equality have long argued that there is a slippery but very direct slope between legalizing same-sex marriage and legalizing things like bestiality, incest, polygamy, etc., etc., most examples of bestiality have come in the form of, of man on turtle love. But it looks like the most dangerous tendency is woman on gorilla love. Because literally on the same day that the court made its historic ruling on marriage equality, on same-sex marriage, women in Japan were making their own ruling on just how attractive a particular male gorilla is. And according to CNN, a surprisingly lucky male gorilla, Shabani, has female humans going ape. Very good, very good pun. My dad would appreciate that. Going ape after mugshots of the 18-year-old animal began going viral on Twitter. A surprisingly oh hunky- my gosh, what do his eyes look like? Does he have like deep, deep He's blue eyes? Deep blue eyes. We're talking about a gorilla. First of all, oh, that's okay. racist because I don't like that blue eyes are your standard of beauty, <laughs> and that's there speciesist because you you're ignorant about gorillas because they don't come with blue eyes. They like human beings who are soulful, like you, me, and Reggie. We all right. have brown eyes. In fact, I don't want to. I'm not going to let non-brown-eyed guests on the show. I don't think I've done it so far. <laughs> no, Claire Potter may have hazel eyes. Hazel, but yeah. I don't like the whole way that green eyes and blue eyes are supposed to be so, uh, like the 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 pinnacle of beauty. Right. No, they're transparent and weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like brown eyes. I do. And you know what? I realized this the other day. I'm attracted to men with brown eyes. You know what? This is all appropriate because this is the marriage episode, right? So we're talking about marriage, love, dating, sex, and all that. So this whole episode, I'm just going to talk about my Tinder exploits. Yes. Just kidding. I don't actually, I don't do that. Um, talk about them. Just kidding. No, I don't. I, uh, anyway, I like men who look like they would have been not tolerated by Hitler. <laughs> That's the aesthetic that I like. I, and that, that tie, that's a, a big tent. I'm a big tent woman. 
Right. That's a lot of inclusion. A lot of That's inclusion, lot. right? Just not the wasps. Yeah. I mean, some look, some of my best friends are wasps. I guess I've, whatever, maybe I've gone, I've dated wasps. My male wasp listeners, don't cry too hard. It's going to be okay. <laughs> we, we can work around this. By the way, Reggie has, has pulled up an, an image of Shabani. He's, he's so cute. He's adorable. I, would, I have to say, for a gorilla, he does look dapper. He does look dapper. He's naked, cause, right, well, so I don't want them yeah. to think he's wearing a bow tie or something. Well, yeah, no, but he's no. pretty adorable. No, it seemed like he got a lot of charm. He has a lot of charm in that face. He's, he's um, aloof, and women love that. Women do love that. Now, I got a question for you, yes. Katie. This is possibly something to ask if we can get a zookeeper on the show, if uh, they could tell us whether or not there is a group of women that just go to the ape houses and just watch like is this a fetish that's sort of international or is this oh i see is this just a uh, just a japan thing i mean the people of japan get very enthusiastic about various things um well they have square watermelons they like they they breed them yeah so now we we know that those guys were right once we have marriage equality we will have bestiality. We will have at least Japanese women on, on gorilla sex. And if Gabe has his way, it'll be Japanese woman on blue-eyed gorilla sex. Wow. Oh, oh guys, let's guys. just... Yay. All right, Gabe is here. Now, we have some cool feedback. This is great. No, this is good. What's up, Gabe? Can I just say, Reggie, it's great to see you again hey. in person oh after God. a week. Likewise, Gabe. Senator James Inhofe admits to having a lot of radical queer friends. So apparently same-sex marriage upsets Senator Jim Inhofe almost as much as the liberal claim that there is such thing as climate change. You guys may remember <laughs> Inhofe, he presented airtight evidence against the quote-unquote hoax, as he calls it, of climate change in the form of a snowball, which he literally brought into the Senate to prove that the world was still cold. Damn. Okay. <laughs> I love models. I love models. You gotta yeah, have a exactly. model. It's very tactile, right? Very, um, what's it called? Montessori. Yeah, Montessori. well, it's Montessori. all the modalities. Modalities, you gotta, yes. You gotta hit every modality when teaching and learning. Well, now he has even more incriminating evidence against the Supreme Court's ruling. He told KJRH. It's a very liberal court. I've been disappointed, in, and I, I was not surprised. I felt that they would rule the way they did. And uh, I know a lot of people, actually, a lot of people and uh, friends of mine in the gay community who also think it was a bad, uh, bad decision. So we now know that the gay community with which James Inhofe rules so deep is actually the radical queer community, which opposes marriage as a patriarchal capitalist bourgeois institution and a distraction from revolution. Uh-huh. Like right? me. Like, like me. Gabe. Right. Gabe is a radical queer straight man trapped in a straight, I don't know, how do you identify? I'm just, I'm, I'm rad, radically straight, but down with the cause. <laughs> He's radically straight. Um, not like at all that. on the I'm spectrum. No, one. yeah. I like that one. And then the last story is a, a really inspiring story about when homophobia creates jobs and intercultural exchange. Orthodox Jews can't protest gay pride. So they hired some Mexican day laborers. A group, ah! a group of you gotta be kidding no, me. A group of Orthodox Jews hired Mexican day laborers to dress in traditional Jewish garb and protest against the New York City gay parade rally on Sunday. And a New York Times reporter noticed it. And although the men were holding signs reading "Judaism prohibits homosexuality" with the logo of the Jewish Political Action Committee, they were plainly Hispanic. He says, "Whatever." <laughs> Just very tan. Very tan. Yeah, they, they're Sephardic Jews. They were Mexican laborers protesting because they were paid to protest. The Times reported, and an actual member of the Political Action Committee said that they had been hired because, quote, the ribbies, the ribbies, 
the rabbis. The Rebbe said that the yeshiva boys shouldn't come out of, for this because of what they would see at the parade. Obviously, the rabbis wanted to expose them to that themselves. Wow. We are going to talk oh. about our show last night. Oh, so fun. With we, surprise drop-in guests. Okay, here's what happened. Ready? You guys ready for this? We had a show, a Laughing Liberally show, to celebrate the rent freeze. Because, by the way, there was a rent freeze for one year. They can't raise the rent for one year of people who live in rent-stabilized housing, right? Right, who are signing on for one-year leases. One-year leases. That's it. So we would have liked more. But anyway... You know why there's a rent freeze? The reason that happened, I'd like to think, is because Ava Farkas, the executive director of the Metropolitan Council on Housing. Who was on the show last friend uh, of the show, right? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, and she'd been uh, I'd had her on her the morning show. I think she got the Katie Halper show bump. Yes. And that's why they knew that she was like a big player, a heavy hitter. And Cuomo was like, oh, I'm, I got to grant them this concession, right? Totally. This is Ava Farkas speaking at the comedy show. But the good news is that last night at Cooper Union, the Rent Guidelines Board, for the first time in 40 years, voted for a rent freeze. <laughs> One year leases. So that means anybody in rent-regulated housing... If you sign a one-year lease this year, then it's the same as your previous lease. There's no rent increase. For two-year leases, unfortunately, though, it is a 2% increase. People in the housing movement worked very hard for the past couple of months coming out to hearings in all the outer boroughs. And tenants really, really fought and pushed for this, and it's it's great that we won. Real estate and landlords have undue influence and really corrupt influence in Albany. So this is a fight that has to continue. So when I made the poster, a GIF, if you will, a meme, and I had info about the show, the comedy show we were in last night, I put a picture of, remember the rent is too damn high, that guy Jimmy McMillan? Rent It's too Damn, I, I love that guy. Photo. Had no idea. Had no idea had who no he idea. was. Oh, really? You didn't recognize him? Okay, no, so I, I was, made a, I'm uninformed. Right. I learn on this show. Park, though. You do. <laughs> I learn about pop culture. You learn about um, politics. politics. Yes. So we take Jimmy McMillan's face, this very iconic image of him like during a gubernatorial debate when he's saying, Rent is too damn high. And I had info about the comedy show we were in last night, and it said, The rent is too damn high, but this show is free and the drinks are cheap. Now, we get to the venue where we're performing. Another comedian, Justin Williams, who's been on the morning show and will be on this show, says to me, oh, Jimmy McMillan's coming to the show? I said, no, I just put his image on the gif. Oh, because he's around the corner. Eating pizza. Eating pizza with his Funny. van, his The Rent is Too Damn High van. <laughs> and he came and he spoke to us. The rent regulation law, the city council, and the governor, they don't know what to do, but why people keep voting for them? And he is not happy about this. He's radical. He calls himself a doctor. He's a radical doctor. I'm like a doctor. You break your foot, you go to the protective doctor. You don't go to your horrible mechanic and say, listen, I broke my right toe. I'm here to fix the issues that would trouble you today. He's a radical doctor. And he's also all of our fathers. He is. He's everyone's yes. father. No, he told us that. Yeah, yeah. He was like, I'm your father. Yeah. He, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What else did he tell us? And he's, he's just, te he he's teaching the, the youth. Uh, I began to see what was happening to young children. Rent. I sit back and I thought, I need to sum it up and put it in one word. Got it. Rent. It's too damn high. Fantastic man with a crazy life story. I right. mean, it's uh, Vietnam he, vet. He was a Vietnam vet. Uh, he lost his memory. He forgot his right. memory from everything that happened prior to 1965, and so uh, he doesn't remember uh, growing up in racism. He's he's a sort of a universal man now. Uh, he doesn't want to deal with race. He wants to deal more with what are the economic problems right. that everyone is going through. I come home from Vietnam. Come here. Talk about what the white cops doing to black folks and what the black folks doing to white folks and what the white folks doing to black. I didn't come here to talk about that. 
You must have a roof over your head, food on the table, and money in your pocket. Um, he's just a, a a real unique person. He also wears a fanny pack and gloves he's everywhere he goes. He's not afraid to rock the fanny pack. He, and it takes a special kind of man securing his masculinity to rock the fanny pack. He wears the gloves pack. for some kind of um, skin condition, right? Because of related to uh, the Vietnam War? Oh, he Agent didn't, Orange. He, he, Agent he Orange, that's right. Agent Orange, but he, I think he wears it, he said, so he could, like, he joked about it. So he could <laughs> if he strangles people. you, he won't leave <laughs> only fingerprints. fingerprints. It's been too long, yeah, since I came on the scene. Now I'm back in the game, looking mean and mean. The race may be different, but the message is the same. R.I.T.D.H. is gonna change the game. Rent is too damn high. My mustache and haircut is too damn black. I'm on a mission again to give the people my word. The rent around here is too damn absurd. We're so excited to have our next guest. I've heard him speak. I'm a huge fan of his writing. He's a contributing writer to The New Yorker, and he's now a staff writer there. And he writes frequently about race, politics, history, and culture. His most recent book is The Substance of Hope, Barack Obama, and the Paradox of Progress. He's an associate professor of history and the director of the Africana Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. And he won the 2015 Sidney Hillman Prize for Opinion and Analysis Journalism for his columns on race, the police, and injustice. So we are so thrilled to have with us on the line Jelani Cobb. Hey, how are you all? Hi, how are you? You've been writing a, a lot about the meaning of the Confederate flag and the claim that it, it could be anything but a racist symbol. Do you have any thoughts about the recent events uh, over the weekend when Bree Newsom climbed up the pole in front of the, the state house in South Carolina and removed the Confederate flag? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we have engaged, I think, of what I called it, um, is a translucent lie. And, you know, we we know what the symbol is. And we know the circumstances and under which the symbol came into existence. And so when, you know, people would say, okay, this is heritage, not hate, I would always, you know, respond by saying, what makes you think those two things are mutually exclusive? Right. You know, because, you know, the hatred part, the racial hatred that we're talking about, is a cornerstone of the heritage that people are trying to avoid or the, the heritage that they're trying to, to uh, you know, Photoshop in certain ways. And so looking at all those kinds of things, you know, it was kind of amazing to see someone kind of take history, literally almost, take history into her own hands and take the flag down. Uh, interestingly enough, I'd attended the rally the Saturday after the, you know, terrible, terrible events that uh, happened at the church. And there was a rally to remove the flag. And when I got there, I was talking with a few other people, and we got into a conversation about, you know, how would people take the flag down if they wanted to? And mm -hmm. so all sorts of things came up. People were talking about grappling hooks. Uh, my favorite suggestion was flaming arrows. Oh. So that would, would have to be shot in order to, uh, you know, incinerate the flag. And I don't think anyone thought climb up the pole and take it down, um, which was elegant in its simplicity. Kind of related. My um, grandfather was arrested before World War II. He climbed up a pole in front of the Austrian embassy and ripped down the swastika. Nice. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. Alex Eisenberg, who I never met, but uh, big, mm -hmm. big uh, story in my family. Um, but of course, unlike this, the Confederate flag, no one tries to except for Holocaust deniers, no one tries to, to redeem that image. In fact, the Confederate flag is often used in Europe in countries where it's illegal to have the swastika. 
Right. I mean, it's interesting uh, that you know, people should ask themselves, why does the Confederate flag have the appeal that it has to you know, right-wing, white supremacist organizations? If, in fact, this is just about you know, a kind of benign Southern heritage, then why do we see it cropping up in such close proximity uh, with organizations that are, you know, avowedly racist? I was just reading about this woman who was selling Confederate tchotchkes, if you will. I don't know if you can actually use a Yiddish word um, when you're describing mm-hmm. Confederate tchotchkes, but... I don't think, I don't think so. It, don't think it's not, it's not kosher, language. right? Yeah. Like, generally, babushka dolls? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, and she, they're going selling, like, hotcakes her Confederate tchotchkes, and um, she she was trying to say that it's not racist at all. And, of course, it's not. She just happens to be married to a man who tried to adopt a highway for the KKK. Right. And whose father-in-law is a member of the KKK. It's interesting, too, that, you know, one of the reasons that we, we are even able to have this kind of ridiculous discussion is that the idea of what constitutes racism has become so malleable. If you remember some years back when uh, the comedian Michael Richards went on that tirade in which he used the N-word repeatedly while he was on stage, uh, you know, he responded by saying, you know, what shocks me about this is that I'm not racist at all. Like, well, you just called someone that word 10 or 12 times. Right. Yeah. Isn't that like the minimum right. definition? <laughs> you meet the minimum bar. Right, right. the minimum bar. Right. So now, uh, I guess people are saying, unless you you know, on your tax returns have to file right. that you own someone. You know, unless you are an actual 2015 slave owner, then you don't qualify as a racist. And so... We are blessed then as a nation. Kind of, right, exactly. Because we've had this sliding scale in terms of what actually constitutes racism, people can do things that are overtly racist while still uh, kind of pointing out their own innocence. Some of their best friends are... I'm not racist, but... But, right, that's always a good, that's but, always a good uh, preamble to anything. Another thing that's making the news, but in a very delayed way, is the burning of black churches. There's a long history of this. You know, we could go back. Even uh, in 1919, there was a, uh, a church that was attacked in Elaine, Arkansas. It was kind of detailed and known to history because... Uh, the NAACP was there investigating with sharecroppers who were trying to organize themselves into a union. And so for, for people who know the history here, that there is a very long lineage um, of black houses of worship. And, of course, you know, kind of most famously, 1963 uh, in Birmingham. And so, you know, there's a long lineage of these kinds of things happening. And what appears is that at least some of these, we don't know, like, what the details are with all of these, these instances, but it's hard to believe that at least some of these instances are not part of that same tradition. Anything that you're looking forward to during the rest of Obama's presidency? He's, he's been uh, kind of devoutly attempting to make sure that his last two years, that no one will refer to them as a lame duck period. Uh, and he's been kind of ingenious strategically about you know the way in which he's deployed his resources. What I would like, and talking about this very specific instance that works in relation to this um, you know, topic we're talking about now, is that in political terms, taking down the flag is, I suppose, is notable, uh, but it's also the most, the easiest of all the possible options for response to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Confederate flag has been uh, kind of seen as problematic by the NCAA, by, you know, Chamber of Commerce types. Right. Uh, the University of South Carolina, people who could be a graduate student that feel, you know, some kind of way about there being this 
a Confederate flag there. And so it, it, there is little, um, you know, among people, a broad array of people. Uh, and additionally, you know, Nikki Haley, who I do think was sincerely affected by what happened there. I don't, I'm not kind of disparaging someone's emotional reaction to this. But it also did serve the purpose of making sure that this would not be an issue ahead of the 2016 uh, primaries, like the third primary, you know, the first primary in the South. And so there are all those that kind of sweep of things that were there, and there's a kind of self-interest involved in it. Um, what I would, would have liked uh, was when the president spoke, was to say that these three things, whether they were predatory lending or uh, body cameras or educational funding, these were the things that uh, Clemente Pinkney cared mm. about, and I'm, challenge- I'm challenging the legislature to vote to affirm these things, uh, to to wrap these issues up in the mantle of Reverend uh, State Senator Pinkney uh, in the same way that maybe uh, LBJ did with the Civil Rights Act and John F. Kennedy, you know? Right. And I think that something like that would be worth worth noting as a historian. Last week, I actually played a part of an interview that Amy Goodman had done with this Republican in South Carolina, white Republican. He'd been very good friends with Clemente Pinckney and was very moved, and he sponsored the bill to remove the flag. And I listened to him right. talking, and I was really moved. And then Reverend William Barber talks, and he mm-hmm. said, basically, we have to have an omnibus bill that puts forward all the things that Reverend Pinckney fought for and believed in. Right. And right. after hearing that, the thing about the flag kind of felt empty. Right. Not to and minimize I it, but... I think the flag is important. I was talking with um, Mark Morial, who, you know, is the president of the National Urban League, and I saw him there uh, in Charleston, you know, this really broiling, broiling heat uh, that was you know, out there that day. And uh, I stopped him and asked him what he thought about removing the flag and whether it was just symbolic and, and so on. And he said something I thought was really interesting. He said that he did think it was symbolic. He said it was a symbolic victory. But he thought that symbolic victories were important mm-hmm. because sometimes they energize people. They energize people to show that you can make some difference, and, it, and they give people the will to fight on for the substantial change. So it's like positive reinforcement for pavement-pounding activism. Right, exactly. It's like, so uh, we still have a corridor of shame. We still have, uh, you know, a governor who refuses to expand Medicaid and so on. But we've gotten this sign, this, this flag down, this sign of uh, racial oppression and, and subjugation. That's right. no longer here. And I wonder how much of a difference it makes for people walking down the street to not have to see that. Right. So. Right. Well, um, Jelani, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you besides The New Yorker? What is your Twitter handle? Uh, I am at Jelani9, J-E-L-A-N-I and the number nine. Great. And we would love to have you back. And next time you're in New York, come into the studio. Yeah, and, uh, great. We now have live in studio Pablo Benson Silva, and he's going to talk to us about Puerto Rico. Bum, 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 Pablo Benson Silva is a native Puerto Rican involved in Occupy Sandy. Occupy Wall Street, and currently a member of the Rethink Tank called Movement Net Lab. Pablo was heavily involved in the Occupy Sandy relief effort as a site coordinator for the network's first donation and volunteer distribution hub, and helped design the worker-owned Rockaway Cooperatives program that emerged from it. Pablo, 
Bienvenido. Thank you, Katie. I relish any opportunity to find levity in such an abysmal topic like a debt crisis. So. Yes. I mean, it lends itself to comedy, though. Like, whoa, right? I'm sure. So talk to us about Puerto Rico. You were born in Puerto Rico. That's right. And yeah. so t tell us a little bit about your relationship with Puerto Rico on a personal level, because uh, personal is political. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. And um, I actually moved in towards the beginning of the current economic crisis, which was in 2006. We had no idea that it would become this kind of you know, crap storm that right. it's become, right? But back then, and it's like 10 years now, almost close, closing up on 10 years of economic crisis. A, um, at that time, a real estate bubble had just popped, kind of uh, being a premonition of what would later happen here in mainland United States, right, um, around the housing bubble. So, so yeah, since then, close to 200,000 Puerto Ricans, a lot of them young Puerto Ricans have migrated to the United States and to other parts of the world. And now we're seeing that, you know, vulture capitalists and hedge funds are, are trying to collect this debt that um, they are very complicit in having us assume, right? So, right. so, so um, can you explain that to listeners who don't understand why they have anything to do with it? Why should they clean up this mess of these irresponsible, fiscally irresponsible people? Of course, right? That's the narrative that right. the media has been pushing very strongly as though it's the same narrative with Greece, right? right. Yeah, that, I feel like... Uh, Puerto Rico has become the Greece of the Caribbean. Oh, absolutely. Right? But and, and it's similar in, in another respect, right? That it's dependent on a metropolitan power, right? Greece is dependent on the Troika in Europe. Right. Puerto Rico is dependent on Washington, right? They can't make their own uh, monetary policy, right? Trade policy, etc., right? And we're in this situation, which we're waiting for policymakers in Congress to actually take action to give some kind of parity to situation Detroit went through, right? right. Um, we're talking about three and a half times the debt of Detroit, um, which is coming now due, is becoming due. There's a huge debt payment that is due tomorrow uh, on Puerto Rico's general obligation debt. And it's um, one of its bigger public corporations, the electric uh, Electricity Corporation, um, so close to a billion dollars in due payments to investors tomorrow, which the governor announced this weekend that they cannot, um, it's not going to be paid. So, so this is why we're hearing so much about Puerto Rico now, especially within the commercial press, right? The financial rags. Right. Um, and, and, and the issue isn't completely solvable from within Puerto Rico because of its specific kind of special relationship with the United States, Right. right. Which is um, which I would call co colonial relationship. Other people will call it unincorporated territorial relationship with the United States. So um, because of this, right now um, Puerto Rico cannot file for Chapter Nine bankruptcy, and it finds itself in unlike Detroit, right, which was able to restructure its debt, finds itself in this very precarious situation now where um, it's going to inevitably default on its um, payment obligations which is going to fur further deteriorate its standing in the debt markets, but also it's going to have to stop paying its public workers. Right. It's going to start, we're going to start seeing huge cuts in education and healthcare. So and what so, do you think should be done? What is the solution? Well, we'll have a revolution tomorrow. Yeah, obviously and, that right, first, right? right? Oh, within the capitalist <laughs> framework. With which, with um, <laughs> within the capitalist framework, honestly, I don't think there's a solution. Mm. Like Puerto Rico is a canary in the coal mine. I think, uh, as is Greece, right, about how 
the, the power of finance capital has been so pernicious and has enticed um, countries with all this easy credit knowing precisely, even though it was high risk, even right. though they knew right. they were getting into what they were getting into, um, they also knew that they could force policymakers, um, Washington, right, and other um, bigger powers to to make sure to put their interests before people's interest. And so in many ways, Puerto Rico is, is, is a kind of sign of, of how corrosive the grip of financial capital is right. and, and how it's eroding democracy right. everywhere. I, th I think it's so telling and interesting to hear, for going back to the Greece example, you hear Germany trying to be very punitive with Greece, making them pay back all their debts. I'm like, do you remember the time in history, your Germany, when a bunch of countries made you guys pay back a lot of debts and the ish kind of hit the fan, if you will, after that, right? No, absolutely. I mean, and, and this is another, just goes to the relationship, the historical relationship Puerto Rico to the United States. U U.S. has used Puerto Rico as an extractive economy since um, it acquired it in 1898, right? right. Um, it, it first was a American sugar plantation and then it became a refuge uh, to protect American corporate profits. Um, since the 70s, which, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't pay any kind of um, federal taxes on their corporate profits. And then in more recently, the, the, this current governor, um, his big idea was to, to lower capital gains tax to zero and to try to entice uh, hedge fund managers to come so move to always, Puerto Rico. <laughs> always a great move. Well, thank you, Pablo, so much for joining us. Sure, it's thank so you very much. It's so great to have you talk about this issue, which is so important and not getting a lot of attention. Now we are bringing on our next guests live in studio, Andrew Correll from Mediaite, and we also have with us a filmmaker. His film coming out now is The Algerian. Giovanni, welcome. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, thanks for coming. And tell us about, a bit about yourself, please. Uh, born and raised in New York, and um, and then since '96, I've been in Los Angeles, working as a filmmaker. I've uh, been working on uh, big budget movies, small budget movies since then as a lighting technician, while I uh, continued to write screenplays and then started shooting short films, which eventually brought me to uh, writing and directing and producing *The Algerian*, which uh, will be released soon in uh, first DC in July 31st, and then August 7th the rest of the country. And Andrew, tell us about yourself. Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of Mediaite.com. We sort of uh, keep tabs on the blowhards in the media uh, who say a lot of really dumb things on a regular basis. Right. <laughs> and, and what's interesting about having you both here together is that your, your film deals with Islamophobia, right, in large part? It deals with uh, partially Islamophobia, a reaction to how people in the United States view uh, some Muslims, and deals with a lot of different things, a lot of different issues that we're seeing in the, uh, the news today. Its, uh, its inception was a post-9-11 reactionary film. The lead actor, is uh, his name is Ben Youssef. He's also the co-story author as well as a co-executive producer. So uh, the film that he and I developed together and worked on the uh, past few years, um, we wrote the screenplay before the Arab Spring began, and as we were filming, we started altering the dialogue to fit in the Arab Spring, and when we were in post-production, ISIS started blossoming, so we added some of the ISIS content to the film. Such great timing for so you. It's very Thank God timing. for small favors. Well, no, you know, honestly, the film would have worked uh, 20 years ago. It certainly worked any, any day after 9-11. There's been constant little uh, blurbs of um, sleeper cells living right. in different countries. Right. 
we uh, we actually watched a bunch of films and read articles and some books that dealt with um, sleeper cells that lived in the United States in the 50s and 60s mm. that were Soviet Union sleeper oh, right. cells. I think so, my, uh, some of my relatives may have been in those. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> yeah. The Reds, For real, yeah. So the core of the story is, uh, you know, it deals with ISIS and it deals with the Arab Spring and it deals with how people view um, Muslim, Muslim-Americans, but ultimately it's a, it's a film about, at its core, it's a love story and it's a coexistence story and it deals with how people who look different, different skin, color, uh, skin colors, different races, different religions, have the potential to coexist peacefully. And um, there's a balance within the fabric of the story-making mechanism, the, the adventure story, the political thriller of the film that makes it exciting to watch. So it's not, it's actually better than just someone getting up on a, a soapbox and saying that, right? Yeah, it's, it's not a documentary. It's shot in a documentary style. But it's a, it's a, it's a really cool action-adventure film that takes place on uh, two different continents. We shot awesome. in seven cities over a two-year period. We have a couple scenes here in New York City. We have scenes in Vegas, Algeria, North Africa and uh, much of it in Los Angeles. So it's a, dynam it's a dynamic film that has like a really good story at its core, a cool love story, and, and it deals with some very, very hard-hitting issues that um, some critics, in fact, if you, look at our, if you look at us online, some critics, in fact, love it uh, and others hate it. So right. when you have a polarized film really that thing, right? is uh, being attacked and being applauded by high levels of intelligentsia, it's always great as a filmmaker because I know I'm touching people. Right. Um, Andrew, you'll have to review it at Mediaite. Yeah. It, uh, first of all, I'm a matchmaker, right? I'm yeah. doing that. But um, I wanted to talk, bring this up to both of you. But Andrew, I thought I'd start with you. Juan Cole, he has a, on his website, Informed Comment, he has an article called, If ISIL had burned down four churches, it would have been headline news. <laughs> Uh, talking, of course, about the, the reaction to the burning of black churches. But what are your thoughts on that? Do you see a double standard? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the same question. Um, you know, when Charleston happened, when the shooting happened, uh, finally a lot of conservatives, a lot of people on the right that are normally banging the desk about um, Muslim terrorism, finally they were recognizing, yeah, they, they, were, they were cornered. They had to call this an right. act of racial terrorism. And it, it showed you how meaningless the term terrorism is. Because um, it's only applied, it's ar applied arbitrarily and usually for people of brown color skin. Um, so but that's the whole color code that we talk about, the rainbow terror? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Is, is today's rainbow right. code, yeah, is today brown. <laughs> but it's interesting, he said about the movie about how it's, um, it's mostly about how we can all get along. I mean, what, when I think of Islamophobia, you know, the, the contrast to that is that Muslim Americans in America are a very successful population and they have assimilated much better than many other uh, immigrant populations. And... I think there's something like there was a Pew survey a couple of years ago that said only 5% of them think have any support of Al-Qaeda when surveyed and only 80, 85% of them think that there's never a justification mm. for any form of suicidal act uh, of violence. You know, most Muslims you meet anywhere in the world don't acknowledge uh, members of ISIS as, right. as, as Muslims right. or as good Muslims. Right. They consider them a little confused at best. Like me so. and Netanyahu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this recent Tunisia attack. And um, David Cameron, the Prime Minister of England, called on UK Muslims to act if they suspect someone of being an extremist. It's kind of like the, if you see something, say something. But you see a brown person is yeah, what they're exactly. saying. Um, <laughs> the, the, the stat I like to trot out is, especially in the United States, you have a better chance of getting killed by lightning or drowning in a bathtub than you do by being attacked by a Muslim terrorist. So we should <laughs> have a war on bathtubs yes. and lightning. I, w I wouldn't mind that. Lightning scares me. I think pe having people aware in society is important. Um, if, if someone sees something that is 
potentially suspect, you see a bag on a platform in the subway in New York, right. you should tell one, you know, somebody because right. it's just not... Even if they have a Jewish star or a cross on. Right. Possibly. Yeah, indiscriminately. Yeah, right, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would be funny. You look, you're like, what, what, what religion are you? Yeah. Oh, you're fine. Anyway. Uh, they also, though, there's been a reaction uh, to following the Tunisia attack. There was a Muslim grave graffitied with a swastika following the killing of British soldiers. And so the night, maybe this will bring the Muslims and Jews together as like a swastika. Anti-Nazi movement? Yes, that's huh. what I'm hoping. I'm always wa- waiting for Muslims and Jews to realize that the Europeans are to blame and to join forces against them. That's my, uh, my hope. <laughs> Gabe, you can laugh. Gabe is like here to help me, and he's like, he's like uh, clapping but stopping his hands right before they make the so sound. Th- so you are establishing that lightning and thunder and blue, are, eyes. And blue eyes are terrorists. My other target. Or terrorist attack. <laughs> I mean, they, they claim it's so, a... That's, yeah, that's that's what, what you're saying. That's I think the, big, the big takeaway. It's a okay. stretch, but I think it can work. Right. The Aryan race or the terror. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, guys, thank you so much for coming. Where can we find you guys online? Uh, you can check out the film on the AlgerianMovie.com, and uh, we have links for our social media there. And you can also check it out on the AMC site, um, different film sites uh, for scheduling and times. But August seventh, it's national release, and uh, July thirty first, it's DC release. Great. Andrew? Uh, Mediate.com and on my Twitter account by my name. Which is Andrew Carell. Correct. Andrew, K-I-R-E-L-L. Great. And this is a Fodell song I put on for you. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> it's a rye song. I used to love this song in high school. Um, thank you guys so much for coming. Come back. And this is the Katie Halper Show. We're here every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on WBAI.org, 99.5 FM, or WBAI.org on the web. I'm Katie Halper. Uh, shalom. Salam. Uh, Ciao. Ciao, Ciao, baby. Mazel Tov. And Molotov. As Scott Walker said, said. Scott Walker once wrote a thank you note to a Jewish donor and said Molotov at the end of it. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Yeah. If that doesn't dissuade you from supporting Christian Zionism, I don't know what will. Or Michelle Bachman's chutzpah. Oh, chutzpah, yeah. Yeah. The chutzpah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome.